Hello and welcome to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm your host, Prudence Robertson. From the sports arena to the legal arena, former Pittsburgh Steeler and Super Bowl champ Daniel Sepulveda traded the football field for the law firm. Now he has a unique mission, providing legal counsel to people who have been harmed by the gender-affirming care industry. He shares about his work to help those who are detransitioning find justice on their path to healing. Women or men? St. Mary's College and all-girls school will now allow transgender women, that is, biological males, to attend. This amidst uproar from students and parents who are concerned their daughters might be forced to share dorm rooms, locker rooms, and more with biological males. We have reactions from Notre Dame alumna Mary Hassan and Notre Dame fellow Mary Fiorito. Stopping the abortion machine. We're joined by Missy Martinez Stone of the Center for Client Safety, an organization that works to shut down abortion clinics by exposing their shoddy work and unsafe environments for women. We kick off our show with a difficult topic, gender dysphoria. Many who struggle with this disorder and choose to undergo surgical procedures often regret their decision. And one law firm based in Dallas, Texas, Campbell Miller Payne, is dedicated to helping those who have fallen victim to the gender-affirming care industry. They're a team of four men, and one of them came to the firm via quite the unconventional path. Daniel Sepulveda is a Super Bowl champion, having formerly played for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was also awarded the title of All-American during his college ball career at Baylor University, and he joins me now. Daniel serves as counsel at Campbell Miller Payne. Daniel, thanks for being here with me. Let's kick it off at the start of your journey into this work. What moved you to leave your esteemed successful football career and get into law? Well, um, uh, uh, injuries put directly, but um, at the end of the day, I, I feel strongly convicted that it was God's leading and guiding. Um, my parents have told me more than once, boy, Daniel, when God guides you in the bigger decisions in life, he seems to speak very, very loudly. That was certainly true of my football career. And then considering my shift from football to the practice of law, it's no exception. Mm. Um, after football, I, I decided to attend law school, um, and I did so at SMU, and then was privileged to, to take a job at Norton Rose Fulbright, a large international law firm here in the Dallas office, doing corporate finance, of all things. Um, and then after two and a quarter years of doing that, was fired for not taking the vaccine under a mandate, which is another story for another time, wow. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, but kicked off this season of searching for... Um, my next sort of vocation. And I, I was, I felt strongly about doing something that I, I felt uh, passionate about. Right. And so in praying about that and trusting God for the next thing on the heels of that, I go to lunch with Jordan Campbell, one of the founding partners of this firm. And after communicating to him, some of the things that I just sort of highlighted there, as I was thinking through that, he says, okay, my turn, let me tell you what God's been showing me. And he pitches this idea of the firm that he has. And as it turns out, that lunch meeting with Jordan was a year ago today. So I've been with the firm now for a year. And as Jordan pitched it, I just felt my heart um, drawn to it. Wow. I, I mean, how could it not be? This, the, the statistics that you share and the, the research that he had delved into and that I started digging into in, in depth um, just shows a, a, uh, some serious consequences for some vulnerable folks who uh, my heart was drawn to. And so um, 
I had previously expressed in while I was in law school to Jordan, in fact, that I had no interest in ever litigating. But as he pitched this to me, I felt the spirit of God prompting me to to jump on board. And so I was all over it. Wow. Well, um, and yes, your firm really is filling a gap. These these people are often are um, left without help. Talk to me about your work at Campbell Miller Payne. It's a unique mission. You're helping people who are detransitioning and going through so much change emotionally, mentally, and of course, physically. Yes. The mission at the firm is our clients. Uh, we are here for them. We're, we're here to help them assert their legal rights and to pursue justice. Of course, each of them are individuals and they have their own stories, but generally speaking, they were vulnerable, distressed, depressed, anxious, had any other number of mental health comorbidities when they sought help from medical professionals. Mm. And on the basis of a few meetings, maybe just one in some cases, they're put on uh, a path of medicalization, which includes potentially sterilizing puberty blockers in some cases, cross-sex hormones, and, and even to the point in some cases where their healthy body parts are removed, all in the name of providing medical care for mental health issues. It's, it's very sad. So the mission of the firm is to help them pursue justice. At the same time, we're here to communicate to them that um, they still have dignity that they are infinitely valued and deeply loved, that while their bodies are significantly harmed, they are more than flesh and bone. Mm -hmm. And so we count it a real privilege to be able to deliver that message alongside helping them assert their legal rights. And so directly, that's what the mission of the firm is. Indirectly, we hope that in doing that, we can inject the accountability that our court system is based on. Our tort system in this country is is um, meant to affect behavior change. So we, we hope that as we adjudicate these cases and help our clients pursue justice, um, that'll do a great deal to start affecting that change in this particular practice. Right. And Daniel, we have just about a minute left, but I want to ask you about a study that's been touted by the Associated Press. It claims that only about 1% of people regret transitioning. Is that true? It seems like Every day, more people are coming forward with stories of regret. Regret. I'm thinking of Chloe Cole, Ollie London, just to name a few. Yes, very quickly, it's impossible to know how many detransitioners there are. I can tell you this. We launched the firm in April of this year, and to date, we have interviewed almost, if not more than 50 potential clients. That's a, uh, on the basis of word of mouth and some of our public media presence. And that's more than one and a half potential clients per week. So I think anyone who asserts that this is a rare uh, person out there, a detransitioner, as they're sometimes called, I, I think is misguided. Absolutely. Well, Daniel Sepulveda, thank you so much for joining us. We'll have to have you back again soon um, of Campbell Miller Payne. God bless you and your work. Sounds great. Thank you. Some unfortunate news out of St. Mary's College in Indiana, the launch of a new policy that will allow transgender women, that is men presenting as women, to enroll at and attend the historically all-girls school. St. Mary's is the sister school of Notre Dame University located just across the street. The decision was made by the school's governing board. The new policy outlines that they will accept anyone whose sex is female or who consistently live and identify as women. There have been spirited calls for the school to reverse the policy. 
Of note is a letter from Bishop Kevin Rhodes of the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. His statement decried the decision, and His Excellency noted that as the presiding bishop over the diocese, he should have been consulted on this matter of important Catholic teaching. I'm now joined by two prominent Notre Dame women from the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Mary Hassan, the director of the Person and Identity Project, and Mary Fiorito, the Cardinal Francis George Fellow at Notre Dame's De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Ladies, thank you for joining me. Mary Hassan, let's kick it off with you. Notre Dame is your alma mater. I'm sure you spent plenty of time with the girls from St. Mary's with it being so close by. Did you ever think such a policy would be instituted there? Absolutely not. And I think it's really ironic because St. Mary's prides itself as being a place to empower women. And yet this is a gross betrayal of women, the, the students who are there, the alums, the faculty, but more importantly, perhaps a betrayal of its Catholic mission and it, its mission to educate women. Absolutely. And Mary Fiorito, you have college-age children, and I understand your daughter had considered attending St. Mary's, but what are you thinking now as her mother? Yeah, so my, my daughter, in fact, has an outstanding application into St. Mary's. It is one of the schools she has applied to for the fall. And I have to say, just as a parent, both my husband and myself now have some really grave concerns. I, you know, one of the reasons we looked at St. Mary's is because we believe that single sex education, particularly for women, has a very valuable role and winds up shaping and empowering Mary, uh, pardon me, empowering women, as Mary Hassan pointed out, is actually in the St. Mary's charter. Mm. Um, their mission statement is to empower women. But now, you know, I, I'm concerned about my daughter possibly sharing private spaces like a bathroom or a locker room with someone who is a biological male. Right. I, I, any parent um, who is trying to create a safe space for a particularly a young girl wants to make sure that wherever she will be, you know, disrobing or showering or in any other kind of position where she is vulnerable, that there will only be women present in those spaces. Yeah. Right. And Mary H., you're an expert on the impact of transgender ideology on our culture. How do you predict this will impact the rate of abuse on campus? I mean, biological girls can't be too excited about potentially sharing these dorm rooms and locker rooms with biological males. Yeah, so it creates a safety risk, that's for sure, because one of the problems with policies like this is the schools will not tell the other girls or the other students or their parents which students might be male presenting as female. So one of the questions, if I were a parent who was looking at this school, is I would wanna hear from the university, are you gonna be enrolling or, or rooming uh, girls with a male student without their knowledge? Mm. Are you going to be allowing these males who might identify as women to shower in the same bathrooms, to use the locker rooms? Because all of those things are gross violations of, of women's privacy, but really disempowering women because it says to the women, your privacy doesn't matter. Your safety doesn't matter. Your feelings don't matter. What matters most to the university apparently is this sense of uh, distorted sense of inclusivity, mm. uh, which is, is really just walking away from 
their Catholic identity, which, you know, should start with the truth about the person. We're created male and female. Right, right. And it's so alarming that they would keep such important information from the parents of these girls. Mary F., what's your reaction, shifting gears a bit, to Bishop Rhodes' public statement on this? I'll read just a short quote from his letter. No doubt St. Mary's College desires to promote love, inclusion, and acceptance within the community, but it does not do so authentically when it separates love from truth. Your thoughts? Well, first of all, I have to say that I, I certainly join Bishop Rhodes in expressing disappointment that as the ordinary of the area in which St. Mary's College is located, meaning he's the bishop that has the Episcopal responsibility for the Catholics in that area, he wasn't even consulted about this. And, you know, when we when we act as a Catholic institution, we have to keep in mind that decisions certainly of this magnitude, they don't just affect the institution and the students who attend it. It affects everyone in the diocese. And so the very fact that he wasn't even consulted, I just find incredibly troubling. But what I really liked about his statement is that he, you know, he distinguished between being welcoming and being kind to those who might have gender dysphoria and then contrasting that to a Catholic institution, as he said, embracing a definition of of a woman that is not consistent with Catholic teaching. So it has actually embraced a definition that is contrary to Catholic teaching. And, you know, at a certain point, institutions have to be careful about the way they are presenting themselves and their policies and procedures, because at a certain point, you, you have to be able to look at an institution and say, okay, from their charter, from their policies, um, from the people who are living and working and teaching within this institution, I can tell that this is a Catholic institution. And that if a parent is looking for a Catholic school for one of their daughters, they can be assured that there's truth in advertising, that this is truly a Catholic uh, a place of higher learning. And I think when we get into these things, decisions that are made privately that impact the Catholic identity specifically, and the ordinary isn't even given the courtesy of a heads up that this policy is going to change. And he apparently found out about it reading in the newspaper, which mm. just is an inappropriate relationship to have with the bishop mm. of the local diocese. I, I think that that does not speak to um, to transparency yeah. and, and it doesn't speak to clarity either, either to the, the you know, again, any Catholic parent looking at this. Um, particular school for one of their children, but even more broadly to other Catholic institutions. You know, at, at what point do they decide for themselves what Catholic means? Yeah, that's pretty appalling. And and Mary Hassan, I'm curious, I know that you're tracking what's going on on this gender ideology front in schools across the nation. Um, do you think that this is a trend that we're starting to see that that all girls schools, which maybe there aren't a lot of them across the nation anymore, but they do exist. Um, is this a concerning trend to you? Do you think we're going to be seeing this more? Oh, we absolutely are already seeing it. So a number of the associations, educational associations of girls' schools, private schools, things like that, have already made those decisions to allow anyone who identifies as a woman to come in. And we have seen other Catholic uh, universities or, or schools make these similar decisions mm. And so one thing I would say about St. Mary's, too, is that I, I think this is really the latest step in what has been a steady drift away from an authentic grounding in Christian anthropology, because we can see that with some of the clubs that they have already, some of the activities that they've allowed to go on in terms of promoting LGBT 
So I'm not entirely surprised mm -hmm. that they didn't consult the bishop or that they have gone in this direction. But I don't think it's going to serve them well. Yeah, that's helpful. I think parents are, are not going to want it. Yeah. I could not agree more. And I'm so grateful that you both could join us today, Mary Hassan and Mary Fiorito. Thank you for speaking up about this injustice and for joining us today. God bless you. And now for more news moving our nation. First up here on Capitol Hill, Senator Tommy Tuberville has shockingly ended his pro-life blockade on military nominations. The news comes after almost a year-long holdout championed by the senator from Alabama who has refused to approve the promotions of hundreds of military officials by the Senate. He did so in protest of the Pentagon's extreme policy that forces taxpayers to cover the costs for servicewomen who want to travel out of state for abortions. Tuberville announced he would maintain the holds on just 11 higher-ranking service members, four-star generals. The reason he removed the hold on so many others? Tuberville told reporters this week that he and the Democrats had reached a draw. He also expressed disappointment that other Republicans didn't stand by him during these 11 months. American taxpayers are going to have to pay now uh, for something to do with abortion, which is illegal. They're destroying our military. Uh, they're not doing what's right. I even had uh, uh, Republican senators come after me that got very personal. The Senate moved quickly to confirm, confirm hundreds of military personnel just hours after Tuberville's announcement, but he explained the impact that holding back those 11 four-star generals will still hold. I'm not done. I'm still holding the four-stars. Everybody said, why, you got, why, why are you holding four-stars? They're the ones that make decisions in the Pentagon about our military. And the country marks the passing of Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to serve on our nation's Supreme Court. Though appointed by President Ronald Reagan and considered a moderate conservative, she joined two other justices in authoring the decision in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the high-profile case that upheld the decision in Roe versus Wade. Kevin Walsh, a professor at the Catholic University of America, explains how O'Connor played a role in convincing fellow Justice Anthony Kennedy, also appointed by Reagan, to uphold Roe. It looked like things might be different in 1991, 1992, because Justice Thomas had joined the court. And if you put together Justice Thomas with other justices on the court, it looked like there might be five for overruling Roe. And it looks like O'Connor's role in some ways may have been to peel off Justice Kennedy from what seemed like his earlier inclination to overrule Roe versus Wade. O'Connor died on December 1st. A private funeral service will be held in Washington, D.C. later this month. And a new report says dozens of abortion facilities shut down after the overturn of Roe v. Wade, 42 to be exact. That's from a group that calls itself the Abortion Care Network. They claim to track every independent abortion business in the United States. Smaller independent abortion facilities are not connected to larger organizations like Planned Parenthood, but they carry out the same fatal practices, including hormone therapy and surgery to change someone's sex or so-called gender-affirming care. Coming up, a team of pro-life investigators helps put these abortion facilities out of business for dangerous malpractice. We spoke to Missy Martinez-Stone, the president and CEO of the Center for Client Safety, about her how her team works to end abortion one facility at a time. We have that interview for you next.
You're watching EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Welcome back to our program. To close out our show, we take a special look at an emerging pro-life group that puts abortion facilities out of business. The Center for Client Safety says that hundreds of abortion facilities in more than 30 states have been cited for malpractice since 2018. This pro-life group's mission? To make sure every single one is held accountable. Formerly known as Reprotection, the group collaborates with people in communities across America to expose violations. Since its founding, the Center for Client Safety has shut down two abortion facilities and suspended the licenses of two abortionists. We speak to President and CEO Missy Martinez-Stone just ahead of the announcement of their new name. We have that interview for you right now. We are here with Missy Martinez-Stone. She's the CEO of Reprotection. Thank you so much for being here with me, Missy. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Of course. So tell me about your mission at Reprotection. Reprotection was started about three years ago, and it was specifically to help pro-life advocates shut down the abortion facilities in their communities. Mm -hmm. And it was started to bridge this gap between the regulations that were being passed on the state level to uh, ensure that these abortion facilities are safe and are you know, sterilizing their equipment, you know, meeting basic medical standards. Sure. But what was happening on the ground was these amazing pro-life advocates like sidewalk advocates and pregnancy centers were seeing that they were not following any of these rules. Um, and so we came in to fill that gap and go, okay, what is actually happening in these facilities? And why are they not being held accountable? Um, and so we come in, we investigate, we research, and we take that information to the appropriate agencies and ensure that they are holding these facilities accountable. One of my favorite things about our organization specifically is that we have measurable results. Mm. And we can see our work in the, in the fact that we have shut down two abortion facilities permanently in the two and a half years that we've been in full operation. But we've also helped stop two Planned Parenthoods from opening in upstate New York, and that was about zoning, wow. you know, and we have got cases all over the country, but we can see the measurable impact and the fact that two cities in our nation do not have abortion facilities anymore, um, and that in turn is protecting women and it's saving children. Obviously, the work that you do to shut down these clinics right. is so closely tied to these people who are on the front lines every day, out on the sidewalk. Talk mm -hmm. to me about how you've collaborated with Sidewalk Advocates yeah. for Life since your founding. Lauren Muzika and her team were some of the earliest believers. I mean, as soon as we came out and said, we are here to help you to be a place that you can bring these reports in a way that honors the woman's experience, mm -hmm. that that protects her privacy. You know, we're not using media, which is very different from a lot of other pro-life groups. And, and not to begrudge them, that's just the way that they choose to, to handle it. But in the past, it's been we hear these stories and then we go to the media. And so it's, it's created a difficulty for sidewalk advocates and pregnancy centers because these women are not comfortable, you know, being, being um, publicized in that way. And so we said, okay, we're going to create a safe place uh, that honors patient privacy where you can bring this information because they were getting calls. Lauren called me and said, I'm getting calls mm -hmm. asking, I'm seeing these crazy things. I'm hearing these, like, and I don't, I don't know what to tell them. And yeah. I said, okay, well, we can now be your place to go. Um, and what it turned into this, this beautiful relationship of we need them and they need us. Like they need that safe place to take that information that they're seeing. But we also need them because without 
the eyes and ears on the ground, we have no way of figuring out, you know, how these abortion facilities are breaking the rules. Right. And so it's turned into this beautiful coalition. You know, we, we talk probably every week, um, same with um, Heartbeat International, Support After Abortion, where uh, they refer to us any cases that they hear, any, any illegal activity, um, and then we provide that service to them and say, if you need a place to report, you know, we'll take those cases, we'll investigate it. You get back to sidewalk counseling. Like, I would be a terrible sidewalk advocate, and I know that about myself. But there are other people that are so good at that, and they need to be doing that. And let me read, you know, 400 pages of court documents or legal code. Right. Um, and so it's, it's turned into uh, when the sidewalk advocates are at their best and they're fully trained and we are at our best and we're investigating and the pregnancy centers are at their best, we, we are all working together, and that's when we see abortion facilities shut down. Yeah, it's amazing the power of that collaboration. Yes. Missy, you mentioned these sidewalk counselors are your eyes and ears. Yes. Um, for someone who might be kind of new to sidewalk counseling, what are the things to look for outside of these abortion clinics? Because mm -hmm. some of them are, are so closed off and private. You know, right. they'll have an escort bring the women in, and you right. have to stand 20 feet away from these clinics. Mm -hmm. um, so what should people be looking for? I mean, we have had situations that are so glaringly obvious because women have come running out of the facility screaming, call 911, or women have left in, in obvious physical distress, mm. um, and the sidewalk advocates were the ones who actually called 911 when the abortion facility did not. And so there are really obvious cases like that. Like, if a woman seems like she is in distress and the abortion facility is abandoning care for her. Sure. Um, those are, we hear kind of those kinds of cases. But other than that, it's really the conversations after the abortion. So if they're outside while the women are leaving, um, sometimes these women will disclose information to them about their experience, you know, how badly they were treated, um, you know, their vitals weren't being monitored, they didn't feel fully informed going into the decision. They were put in a room with 10 other girls and given the pill all at the same time. And so sometimes these, these women are leaving and they're so distraught about their experience that they'll talk to the sidewalk advocates or they'll talk to the pregnancy center and say, this was, was not okay. And that's where they go, hey, there's a group um, that can advocate for you and, and for your safety and, and we can hold them accountable for that. And so it, it's just really anything that sounds illegal or unethical, it probably is. Yeah. Um, and we can take that time to determine, you know, what next steps need to be taken. Missy, you mentioned abortion pills. And obviously, this is another front that we're facing now. Um, states like California are stockpiling abortion pills. Some abortion clinics are remaining open just to dispense pills to women. They're not doing surgical abortions, but they're doing abortions by pill. Um, how is reprotection navigating this part of the fight? The entire pro-life movement is having to adjust a little bit, you know, post Dobbs, post the reversal of Roe versus Wade, right. it created a new frontier for us, right? And a big part of that has been, you know, some states have made abortion illegal, except for some very, very specific cases, but it's created this black market of abortion pills. And, uh, you know, states like California, Illinois, New York, they are advertising, you know, come to our state and get an abortion. Right. Um, but at the same time, they don't regulate their abortion facilities at all. Like the, the health department has no jurisdiction over their abortion facilities. So to me, 
that's just uh, a situation just waiting for abusers to take advantage of, right? Um, but the the real issue has become the mailing of, of abortion pills to these women that have not seen a physician, that have not been checked for risks, um, that are taking these pills when it's when they're too far along or they're past FDA, uh, you know, recommendations to take it, and there's no oversight. And the abortion industry has gotten so desperate to keep abortion pills accessible that they've re they've removed every safety guideline, you know, and, and who's paying the price for that? It's the women that are having complications. Right. And so what we're doing is we're working with states right now to figure out, okay, what what is on the books? What can we enforce? How can we make distributing the abortion pill illegal in these states? Or, um, you know, this is this is the whole conversation that, that, the, that the National Pro-Life Movement is having is, is how do you regulate this? Um, and it's it's really hard, but for us it's looking at complications you know, are when women are going to the ER, are the hospitals reporting these complications? Like, can we get that hard data and show this is dangerous and needs to be regulated? And so we're all trying to figure this out and do it uh, quickly and in a way that is protecting women from the abortion industry. Well, Missy, thank you for pioneering this important facet of our movement. It's so important, and I'm so glad we got to learn more about it today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. That does it for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Don't forget you can find us at EWTN Pro-Life on all social media platforms, X, Facebook, Instagram, we're there. And if you're interested in more news from our nation and world, go to EWTN.com forward slash pro-life and sign up for our newsletter, The Pro-Life Pulse. Remember, life is a gift. Your life is a gift. Happy Advent and God bless.